You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. Brought to you by Abercrombie and Kent, pioneering experiential luxury travel since 1962. Buckle up and take off every fortnight to spectacular destinations as we share the inside word on all things travel. Whether you're into luxury travel or tripping on a budget, whether it's river cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an awesome travel experience. Tune in with Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And be sure to like and share this episode so everyone can get a taste of all things travel and now on to the show with your host from Christchurch New Zealand Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch Hi there, thanks for joining us. I'm Chris Lynch. And I'm Mike Yardley. Great to have you aboard. Right, we're going to talk about eco-friendly travel. Now, before you groan and moan, this is interesting because we understand, you know, obviously sustainability is the growing dynamic. It's a powerful one too. And it is reshaping how we travel. But is air travel the big villain when it comes to global emissions? I say no. Mike, what do you say? I'm with you. I think it is overstated because the latest figures show the aviation industry is responsible for 2.5% of global carbon emissions. It's not exactly monstrous, but even if you do feel guilty about flying, very few of us actually do anything about it. Mm. In New Zealand, they revealed uh, recently that fewer than 5% of Kiwi travellers offset their carbon emissions. Now, Greta Thunberg may like to think flight shame is going to sweep the world and change our behaviour radically, but to date, reality says otherwise. You know, interesting you talk about this whole carbon credits. I have never ticked the box that said, would you like to do the carbon credit thing? Because I just don't think that's going to change the temperature of the planet. Am Mm -hmm. I being a bit too mean-spirited here? Well, um, possibly, Chris, but I mean, I suppose the other option is she could go and plant a, a tree at home, couldn't she? In the backyard. Well, I suppose you could. You could. Uh, you could take the do-it-yourself approach. Well, you <laughs> could, I suppose. Yes. But let's be honest, there is not a, a decent alternative no. yet to the whole fossil fuel and the bad aircrafts, is mm. there? I mean, what, are you going to get into electric um, plane anytime soon? Well, I think for the smaller aircraft like, you know, yeah, de Havilland's um, and maybe Bombardier, some of those smaller aircraft that use uh, are used on provincial routes, they may be electric within 10, 15 years. But absolutely for your long-haul jet aircraft, um, for the foreseeable future, the brutal reality is they will be powered by fossil fuels. But the amazing thing is, Chris, that, I mean, the jet aircraft rolling out of factories at Airbus or Boeing today, they are 80% more fuel efficient than, say, the jet planes of the 1960s, which I think is, you know, staggering progress. And both of those big um, aviation companies are absolutely committed to um, striking greater efficiencies from Air New Zealand's point of view, who have been seen as a, as a leader when it comes to sustainability, mm. they themselves are conceding that there will be no major carbon-busting breakthroughs um, anytime soon. Aviation, biofuels and hydrogen are probably the more likely long-term future for long-fuel uh, jet aircraft, but that could easily be 10, 20 years away. Biofuels 
currently are three times the cost of jet fuel. So just on pure economics, it is not going to happen overnight. Some carriers are adding a blend of biofuel to their jet fuel mix. I know that Qantas was dabbling recently with biogas, which uh, is derived from Ethiopian mustard seeds. But <laughs> but currently, it just does not stack up as a financially viable proposition. There are some aircrafts, though, I know that I've been flying on in recent times where they're trying to at least be seen to be doing something. I'd rather, at least they're giving it a go. And you've got some examples of that. You know, the likes of plastic bags on bits and pieces, they're gone. Yeah. There are small changes, yeah. right? Yeah. That's true. Nothing uh, wrong with that. I'll give them some credit for that, some carbon credits. Indeed. And I mean, I have become, just as an individual, far more conscious of um, single-use waste. And yeah, I mean, there is a bit of a problem with our casual throwaway attitude to it. Um, and yeah, one hits wonders on planes. They are under attack as such. Boarding a plane is a surefire way at the moment where you are just surrounded with a parade of single-use plastic. Some airlines are better than others. One of my worst experiences recently was on a flight from Bogota to Mexico City. So it was about a, a two-hour flight, right? The plastic binge was just extraordinary. I, f- I thought I was swimming in plastic. <laughs> my blanket was wrapped in plastic. The headset was in plastic. My cheese sandwich came in plastic, as did the bread roll, the packet of M&Ms, the plastic coffee cup. Then there was the water cup in plastic, the cutlery, the toothpick, the stir stick, all in plastic. And sin of all sins, I was even given a paper napkin by the flight attendant wrapped in plastic. So I was feeling, you know, very... Very, very guilty on the green front. And then the flight home, you cancelled and you got a boat home, did you? <laughs> well, possibly, yes. Look, you've been very good, by the way, doing your research into the amount of uh, plastic yeah. waste that is being generated in, in flight. Is it much? Um, well, according to the... Sort inter- of. Yeah, it, uh, it, there's certainly room for improvement because according to the International Air Transport Association, airline passengers alone generated over 6 million tonne of plastic waste globally uh, in the past year, and only 9% of it was recycled. So uh, that is a huge amount of landfill. And, you know, it can infiltrate the loneliest reaches of the planet, uh, down the stomachs of deep-sea creatures, and ultimately the human gut once it gets into the waterways in the ocean. In the past year, though, many airlines have started to ring in the changes. Uh, in uh, New Zealand, with Air New Zealand, since October, those coffee cups you get on board are now made from plants, not plastic. Um, and that's been rolled out both domestically and on the international network. Uh, and from September, plastic water cups uh, were being transitioned to recyclable alternatives. That's an ongoing um, project. On an annual basis, in New Zealand recently announced they currently chew through 44 million plastic cups. So with those uh, reductions in plastic just, you know, from the cups, that that is a start, but there's still a long way to go. Okay, and I have noticed too, um, the whole plastic this and that and coffee cups at airports, they're yeah. trying to be more sustainable. I'll give them some carbon credits for that too. Yeah, well, the, the one of the, uh, the really topical concerns is single-use plastic water bottles that people will buy in an airport after they've gone through security, right? So they'll go to some outlet, probably be charged some exorbitant price for their single-use water plastic bottle, then board the plane. Now, San Francisco Airport in August, they have banned 
any airport retailers from selling plastic water bottles. Christchurch Airport is thinking about it. And I say fair enough because I have made an absolute point of when I am preparing to travel, I ensure I take with me a reusable aluminium water bottle that I will refill as needed as I go. Yeah, good it, It's not hard, is it? It's not hard. No, and I, look, there's nothing wrong with trying to at least trying to minimise minimise your own waste. I try yeah. to do the same thing now. I'm a bit more cognizant of not getting, you know, the plastic water bottle every five minutes now. I'm sure. trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, I think we can all make a contribution on that front to just, yes, curb this single-use craze. Every time I visit the likes of Bali or Vietnam or Thailand, I feel sick. If you wander away yeah. from... In the prime tourist areas particularly, you go along the shoreline, it is just a wash in this stew of plastic rubbish. It is horrific. But I mean, even in Christchurch, when I'm taking a walk along the Heathcote or the Avon, um, it amazes me how often I will spot plastic crap floating in the water, mm. and that is bound for the Pacific Ocean. So that mm. is bound for those deep-sea creatures that, you know, supposedly we are all concerned about. I've noticed now every hotel that I go to, there is always something about trying to be more sustainable, whether it's yeah. with the, the the soaps, whether it's with the bedding. They want you to be conscious. Part of me thinks, though, are they just saying that because they're too lazy? <laughs> to, are they too lazy to remake the bed? Come on. Well, uh, yeah, it does have that benefit, doesn't it, in terms of uh, less, less labour. Um, one big trend that emerged this year, and it's really taken hold, is hotel chains taking aim at single-use bathroom amenities. Now, you know at some of the, the fancier hotels... Um, you will find those silly little single-use shampoo, conditioner, uh, and, and body gel bottles. Mm. Well, they are being phased out by the likes of Marriott, IHG, and Hyatt. They are all saying they'll be gone, completely gone within two years. And now the pressure is on other hotel chains uh, to ditch what are increasingly being seen as wasteful fripperies in favour of refillable dispensers. Nothing wrong with that. I was in a, what they call, you know, one of New Zealand's first uh, sustainable hotels based in Queenstown. Yep. You can't get those sort of wee sachets of anything no. anymore. It's just basically a push. A dispenser. And, yeah, nothing wrong with that. I thought yeah. that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of other eco-friendly ideas for the yeah. so-called more mindful traveller though, right? I think so. I mean, if you do actually want to travel and make a positive impact, not um, leave a massive carbon footprint, um, I mean, one practical thing you can do is support local conservation projects in the destination that you are tripping to. For example, when I was in uh, Sarawak in Borneo uh, this year, I made a point of visiting one of the orangutan uh, rehabilitation sanctuaries where I made a donation and you do feel good for it. You think, yep, me coming here has made a contribution to a positive um, endeavour. Um, sleeping green, when it comes to places to stay while away, you can easily do research, obviously, online and, and find out what are that hotel's environmentally friendly practices. Are they into solar panels? Um, are they into composting? I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting what you just referred to before about making the bed. The other big thing, which has now become very commonplace – um, hotel towels and linen. Do you want it changed every day? Yes, I do want it changed oh, every day. Thank you. So you want a fresh towel every day, Chris? I want a fresh towel every second. Oh, that's shameless. Would no, you have what? a fresh towel at home every day? Or would you use Actually, the same I, towel no. for a week? No, I would have a fresh towel every day. Ooh, I change my towels every day. Thank Are you, you that dirty? 
No, I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm, that, I'm that clean, thank you very much. Oh, okay. Can I just say, you just reminded me of something. Did you yes. know, I watched a documentary the other day on TV, many of the soaps in Las Vegas hotels, did you know they're recycled? They boil them up and recycle them? Supposedly. You didn't know that one, did you? Do you believe they really do or do they just say that? <laughs> no, I don't believe it. Well, the, the most consumerism city on the planet, I doubt it. Anyway. Exactly. A um, couple of other tips, by the way. Go independent when you travel. So... Uh, use a local tour guide. When I say go independent, use the local tour guides. Don't use some great big multinational company yeah. um, that Good has point. their guides from a country, you know, many miles away from where you're traveling to. Um, sensible sightseeing. Uh, sorry, sensible sightseeing. Now, I know this may sound like um, I'm stating the obvious, but don't litter. It's amazing how many new people who come to New Zealand don't actually see a problem with littering our country. Mm. Don't litter. If you're planning on going snorkeling, choose a sunscreen that is not going to wreck the coral reef. Um, don't touch the coral. Um, so there are some, you know, yeah, really, fair. really sensible, quite simple things you can do to help the cause. Yeah, listen to you being the big eco-traveller, Mike. Thank you very Never much, thought. Well, keeping with Mike Yardley's obsession with uh, being environmentally <laughs> friendly, which is a bit of a turnaround for Mike, actually, isn't I'm it? I'm just trying to do my best. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just mm-hmm. uh, taking the mickey because I can. Um, because there are some many eco-friendly destinations now. Case in point, Denmark. Yes. Uh, and if you're heading over that way, um, there are plenty of good options to feel like you're a good traveller, right? That's true, yeah. I mean, obviously, Copenhagen in itself is an incredible destination, but if you can tear yourself beyond the city... There are some fabulous day trip options, really short hops out of Copenhagen. And um, I would sort of liken it to the Danish pastries of day trips. They're all short and sweet. And there is something novel for Kiwis in the fact that Copenhagen is based on the landmass of our namesake, Zealand. So you can rev up the curiosity exploring the likes of North Zealand and West Zealand from Copenhagen. Sweden's quite close by too, isn't it? It's super close. And uh, obviously, being a self-confessed train spotter, I would definitely recommend taking a ride over the water from Copenhagen. It's just a 40-minute ride on the train to Sweden's southern city of Malmö. And it's connected by this absolutely sensational piece of engineering, the Ottersund Bridge. It's a 16-kilometre-long tunnel and bridge combo, which spans the strait between the two countries. It's a transportation marvel, even though it's been eclipsed by some even more daring sea bridges like the one that now connects Hong Kong to Macau. That looks amazing. I was in uh, Hong Kong when I, when that was still being constructed, yeah. and, I, and I'm, I'm adamant that when I returned from one part to another part, that was like 50% more was done. It's amazing yes. how they work over there. Yeah. Now listen, where should fans of Hans Christian Andersen head? Well, 90 minutes west of Copenhagen, I went to Odense, which was his birthplace, and you can visit the houses he lived in, many of the locations that inspired some of his fairy tales are there in, you know, vivid 4D. It's a stunningly cute town. And the Anderson Museum vividly walks you through his life and um, his masterly writings. As an aside, Odense is also the resting place of King Canute, who was killed just a stone's throw from the cathedral. And you can actually see his skeleton, King Canute's skeleton, in the crypt of the cathedral. Now, you, you've got a bit of a, a, a nice take on the castles there. Mm-hmm. Some of them look quite fairy tale like eh? They do. There's a stash of 
very regal real estate um, uh, in Copenhagen, but also just beyond the city limits. Denmark's answer to Versailles is definitely Frederiksborg Castle. It's got the frothy fountains like Versailles. It's only 40 minutes away from Copenhagen. It's uh, lakeside. Um, Very dreamy, straight out of a Hans Christian story. And further up the line in Helsingor, you've got Kronberg Castle. Now, fans of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. will know this castle because it was cast by Shakespeare Mm -hmm. as Hamlet's lair. The bard actually never visited the site, Kronberg Castle, but he nailed its sombre spirit uh, brilliantly. I noticed there were no fireplaces in Kronberg Castle, and apparently it was an oversight by the royal architects. He forgot about the fireplaces. So back in the day, (laughs) whenever the royals were in town and they were having a midwinter bash, they would march several thousand royal guards into the castle and the troops' body heat did the trick in warming up the castle. You saw that? You sure they weren't just cognizant of climate change? I was going to say, maybe it was just an eco-friendly <laughs> <laughs> answer, yeah. There are some good Viking haunts too. Yes, uh, Rossguild, uh, an absolute banger of a day trip. The Viking Ship Museum is right alongside Rossguild Fjord. And there were five old Viking ships that were deliberately sunk in the fjord a thousand years ago to blockade the royal city of Roskilde. And amazingly, only 50 years ago, they salvaged these ancient Viking ships from the seabed. They're a staggering sight. Now, obviously, uh, through the ravages of time underwater, uh, they've um, incurred a bit of damage and a bit of Mm. erosion and so forth, but they have been reconstructed full-scale, Uh, in the museum. And uh, you can also, at the museum, see boat builders today still building traditional Viking ships. Many are made to order, some probably for Christmas presents for very wealthy Germans and Russians. Um, So they are the perfect gift for the man who has everything, from Roskilde with love. Hey, is that where the Danish royalty is entombed? Yeah, Roskilde is a really good day trip destination because the cathedral is the final resting place for so many of uh, Denmark's monarchs. There's dozens of them inside the church. And some of the um, uh, some of the uh, mausoleums are obscenely extravagant with enough marble to pave a small town. Yeah, I bet. The current Queen of Denmark, she actually recently had to sign off on the design for her final resting place. And it's been installed in the cathedral, but it's all behind curtains because, you know, it won't actually be fully revealed to the public until she has passed away. But it, um, the, the design concept plans have been released and it's sort of like this giant opaque glass eggshell that she's going to be laid to rest in. Very modern. Very odd. I think I'd prefer a marble crypt, personally, other than, you know, compared to an eggshell. But there you go. And just bury a hole. Yeah. Um, Rail, that would be the best way to shoot to these spots, wouldn't it? Well, very eco-friendly, Chris, yes. Good. And uh, as I mentioned, yeah, short and sweet uh, rides from Copenhagen to these places. The Danes certainly know how to run trains. They are spotless. They are zippy. They are reliable. And uh, on the bigger trips across Denmark... You actually get complimentary coffee on board, which never goes amiss. 
So uh, grab a ticket to ride and enjoy some Danish day trips. Nice. Now we've got a courtesy of Lonely Planet, the world's number one travel guidebook brand. We've got a giveaway, Mike. Yes, if you want to uh, be in the draw for a copy of Lonely Planet's latest guide to Copenhagen, and it does include um, some of the uh, day trips I've mentioned, uh, subscribe to or rate our podcast at Apple Podcasts and your feedback will put you in the Lonely Planet draw. Good luck. We'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned. Kiwi Tripsters will be right back after this break. Abercrombie & Kent was born on safari in East Africa in the early 1960s. It's grown to become the world leader in luxury adventure travel. Now with 56 offices and more than 2,500 travel experts on the ground around the world, Abercrombie & Kent takes the world's most discerning travellers on exquisite journeys in more than 100 countries and all seven continents. This is luxury travel redefined, taking you out of your comfort zone in exquisite comfort on handcrafted, bespoke, private and small group journeys and luxury expedition cruises. Talk to your travel agent, call Abercrombie & Kent on 0800 441 638 or visit abercrombiekent.co.nz. It's aloha time, and if you're heading to Oahu, the ultimate taste of the North Shore would have to be the Dole Whip, wouldn't it? Oh, my goodness. I would just, like, go to the Hawaiian Islands for Dole Whip. It's so good. Um, but, yeah, if you want the whole town and country experience on Oahu, I reckon from Waikiki, grab a rental mm. and take a drive through that red earth tart of the island to the North Shore, and just 10 minutes from the North Shore – is the old Dole Plantation, home to Dole Whip, soft serve, pineapple infused ice cream. It's outrageously divine. The only problem is the queues to get it, Chris, will just billow throughout the day. So it's a very good reason to leave Waikiki early and have a queue-free Dole Whip at 8am in the morning as a breakfast treat. Nothing wrong with it. And by the way, once you've finished with the queues and you yes. speak to somebody, they are the friendliest people on the planet. Yes, they are Don't fabulous, you aren't they? I think mm. they've um, obviously they obviously have a regular uh, full of Dole Whip themselves, which keeps them happy. Quite possibly. Yeah. The North Shore, I didn't realise this, they pioneered shaved ice, thank you very much. And That's there's right. an original store you can get to there yes, as well. There is, yes. Um, now, I know this sounds like Indulgence City, but you've had your Dole Whip right at 8 a.m. Just head down the road. Um, and the pioneer of Hawaiian snow cones, uh, shave ice, is Matsumoto Shave Ice. And the original store, is in Halaiva, Hawaii's surf city on the North Shore. It's about 10 minutes from the Dole Plantation. It's got a really raffish, rustic charm, uh, this fabulous town of Halaiva. Lots of, like, clapboard stores. Matsumoto has been there for nearly 70 years, and the crowds just never stop swamping their store. But like the Dole Whip, you know, once you hit midday, one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, it's just crazy the number of people who are lined up for that bowl of crushed ice with all of those stripes of syrup. Um, I actually found it a bit too sweet. Did you ever try Spam when you are over there? (laughs) In a can. Yeah. Spam in a can. I did. What did you think? Just sort of tastes like, Mushed up ham, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it was wasn't it originally made for the uh, the what the the, the soldiers? So, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Oh, anyway, uh, surf and sea, I yep. mean, this is the ultimate, isn't it? It's incredible. So once you've been to Matsumoto in Halaiva, um, surf and sea is about 150, 200 metres down the road. And this is like, for a surfy, a world shrine, this store, surf and sea. It's um, a really historic building, faded yellow coloured, and it actually began life as Hawaii's first resort hotel. After World War II, it became this surf and dive shop, and it's like an emporium. It's a museum-worthy emporium because the merchandise mixes it with amazing memorabilia like the Duke's final fiberglass surfboard. And I met the owner of Surf and Sea, Joe Green. He's been running it for decades. This guy's a treasure, and he's also a master ukulele maker all handmade from native recycled wood. He gave me a crash course in playing the ukulele in store, which was very embarrassing. I was a disaster. (laughs) But uh, the instruments themselves are stunning. What is so striking, by the way, about Turtle Bay? Because yeah, I never well, got to go there. Yeah, it's um, yeah on the North Shore, not far from Halle either, uh, Turtle Bay. Um, I just like its elemental magnificence. You feel like you're at one with nature. Yeah. And yeah, if you want that sort of front row perch on the North Shore's famed big wave action, this place cannot be beaten. The, the resort itself at Turtle Bay, it's been ingeniously designed. So it's positioned right on the edge of a point and you've got those pounding waves smashing ashore on either side of the hotel. So you actually feel like you're in the sea or on a ship. It is magnificent. And because the hotel has been deliberately built on a westward tilt, the sunsets are just pure theatre. Now, can I ask about the bakeries? Because it's world famous for bakeries there, eh? Absolutely. They know how to bake. They have got some amazing bakeries, and you do not want to go home without trying a Lilakoi roll. Um, North Shore Bakeries, I would have to say, I think they are out of the box. Now, close to Turtle Bay uh, at the Hukalau Marketplace, I went to Auntie Emily's Bakery. Uh, for one of these Lilakoi rolls. They are like this super light pastry slathered in passion fruit icing. They're just delightful. And also close uh, to Haleiva, there's a really old hole-in-the-wall bakery called Pa'ala Akai. And you'll want to sink your teeth into one of their freshly made snow puffies. I mean, even the name snow puffies sounds good. <laughs> it makes you start to dribble, doesn't it? When I say snow puffy, I see Chris Lynch's dribbling. I feel like I need to go for a run. Well, they are flaky, buttery pastries and they're stuffed with custard and then they're mm. topped with swirls of chocolate fudge. Oh, Actually, can we talk exercise because there are some ways you can burn all this off, please? Thank you. Yes. Actually, before we do, can I mention one of the bakery? Yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Ted's Bakery. Now, you've got to go to Ted's after you've had a run, <laughs> for a chocolate how pi It's chocolatey, coke, nutty, and encrusted with macadamias. It is very sinful, calorific overload. But yes, you are going to need to burn it all off. And I would suggest one of the best places to go, if you've had enough of the shoreline, Waimea Valley. It's very botanical. Hit the hills of Waimea Valley. Now, this is a, a not-for-profit botanical wonderland. And they've got lots of archaeological sites dedicated to old Hawaiian gods at Waimea Valley. Um, It's quite steep, so you'll get a really good workout, but um, it's really enriching and they've got a kick-ass waterfall at the end of the track to cool off in. (laughs) 
Right, let's head to Bendigo. A bit of a heritage city, isn't it? 90 miles from Melbourne. Wasn't Bendigo at one stage of its life rated one of the richest cities in the world? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, in today's dollar terms, over $30 billion worth of gold was extracted uh, from 1851 when the gold rush started through to 1954. And it's incredible, really, because, you know, Back in the even the 1870s, Bendigo was still a tent town, but it just dramatically transformed into this grand gold city of architectural bling, all because of their rich gold finds. It is beautiful, and that means, I would say, the gold rush was responsible for some of their incredible architecture that's, that's very unique to yeah. this region that you don't see in other cities across Australia. That's very, very true. Yeah, I mean, governments, banks and miners, they ploughed their riches back into the town, which was fantastic. Um, and the architects at the time, in the late 19th century, were just like given free reign to flaunt their flamboyance and their wealth. So they used a lot of stone, sandstone, bluestone, and granite in the buildings. And in the 1880s, yeah, Bendigo was considered the richest city in the world. Descending from the park, when you're in Bendigo, into Paul Mall, even today, it is like uh, walking onto the the very best real estate of the Monopoly board mm. in Paul Mall and just the, the sweep of sumptuous architecture you see there is quite glittering. Didn't Meyer, that department store, didn't yeah. it start there? Yeah, Sydney Meyer uh, of department store fame, he founded his emporium actually from a street cart uh, in Bendigo. He would take the street cart door to door uh, and then obviously, yes, the, the, the department stores followed the more portable uh, retail practice. Um, something else which I found really interesting <clears throat> is um, the former post office, which is now the, the visitor centre in Bendigo. It's been built in like French Renaissance style. It looks like something out of Paris. And it's got these soaring, this soaring clock tower, which houses Bendigo's version of Big Ben. And when the opera singer Dame Nellie Melba was staying in Bendigo at the Hotel Shamrock across the road, um, the chiming of the bells every 15 minutes kept her awake. So in a bid to keep the diva, Dame Nellie Melba, uh, to keep her happy, uh, the chimes fell silent. And ever since then, the bells have stopped ringing at 11 o'clock, so no one has kept awake. Oh, thank goodness for that. Yes. It's a beautiful-looking city. I wonder if this is part of what uh, they're trying to market more of. because. You know, I haven't even really heard of it, to be honest. Yeah, it's but it's very beautiful. But it's only about ninety minutes from Melbourne, so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a regional city of Victoria, but booming in population. A lot of people in Melbourne are cashing up, selling up, and shifting to Bendigo oh, really? because it's a better quality of life. So it's the what the retirement city? Do you think a lot of young people as well? Yeah, hundred thousand population there. Yeah, now, I noticed too. Uh, they've got a tram that kind of reminds me yes. a little bit about Christchurch, but yes. probably the only thing. Yep. Um, tell me about their their talking trams. Yeah, these are actually really famous. Uh, the vintage talking tram, and um, it actually gives you a really good sort of overview of the city's dramatic rise from a tent town on the back of the world's richest gold fields. It's a hop on hop off uh, tour. So you can zip away, you can zip your way around all of the great sites in Bendigo. Um, and yeah, it's a talking tram as in it's, uh, it's got a commentary on board. But all of these trams are, um, are very, very old. And the amazing thing in Bendigo is the tram depot 
is where all of the trams from all over Australia are restored. It's where they, it's like Tram Hospital. They go there yeah. to be restored to their former glory. So it's a really venerable depot. Speaking of all of this, did you even get a chance to check out some of the gold mines? Yeah, I took a tour down into the depths of the earth at Central Deborah Gold Mine, and this was the last commercial mine to operate in Bendigo. And they've got a whole lot of uh, different tours, including, I love this one, the Nine Levels of Darkness. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and this is Australia's deepest underground mining tour. So you actually go about um, over 200 metres, 228 metres underground. It's deep, it's dark, it's dirty, it's damn cold. Uh, but you are kitted out on overalls and you get your hard hat and a miner's lamp. And it does actually give you a very... Um, instructive insight into the harsh conditions, that damp coldness um, that, you know, the workers had to endure there. Uh, There's a labyrinth of tunnels and it's the profound silence underground that really struck me, Chris. Now, that uh, that gold mine, Central Deborah, the last big one in Bendigo, uh, that closed in 1954 and many of the staff and the tour guides uh, are the grandchildren of the original Central Deborah Miners, so legacies live on. What is the deal with the Sandhurst Jail? This is incredible. Um, the Sandhurst Jail is now known as Ulumbara Theatre. And what they've done is they integrated this glorious new theatre into the former Sandhurst Jail. And during the restoration and construction project of the theatre, the workers discovered a secret underground tunnel that was once used to transport prisoners. Several inmates were hanged for murder within this really austere Victorian-style prison. Now, the prison closed in 2006, and what they've done with the theatre is they've they've created this remarkably compelling entrance, whereby the main entrance is like the corridor right through one of the main wings of the old archaic prison. So you walk past all of these old, austere jail cells. You can see the graffiti from the last century in these cells. Um... And because the main corridor past these cells is paved in bluestone, the sound of your footsteps reverberates through the wing, which is a very evocative reminder of its previous life. Many original elements of the prison remain, including the jail's gallows, and there's a trap-doored platform between the two walkways in the upper tier where people were hanged. Um, and the box office is very close to where the inmates were executed. So it's a really interesting theatre to check out for its history. Now, this town, town or city, no, I call it a town, it's quite famous for pottery. There's some beautiful yeah. looking designs there, and there's a, a kind of a lovely working pottery there, right? Did you get a chance to visit that? I did. So it's just on the approach to Bendigo, about five minutes out of the city, Bendigo Pottery. It's Australia's oldest working pottery. It's got a fascinating Backstory, Chris, because it was established in 1858 by a Scottish settler who had been lured to Bendigo by the chance to to make it rich and, you know, strike it lucky with Mm. a gold rush. Um, And as he was digging, he didn't find any gold, but he struck the jackpot with clay. And this is a fellow called George Guthrie. So he he stumbled upon this huge clay deposit, absolutely perfect for making ceramics. Um, and he was, like, as I say, from Scotland. So he was very mindful of the grand potteries of 19th century Britain, thinking, well, perhaps 
the Hipset might be a starter for 10 and, and Bendigo. <laughs> um, and to cut a long story short, it absolutely boomed. And uh, the pottery still continues today. They've got the most amazing dome-shaped wood-fired kilns um, and an incredible amount of art. They've also brought in a lot more um, other types of art to the site. So it's sort of like an artistic emporium now, but um, a fabulous place to visit. Yeah, do a Google search. It's some beautiful pottery, it really is. Mm. Um, listen, we're out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to get your feedback. And thank you so much for some of your feedback that's been coming through thick and fast. We appreciate it. All our show notes are available on the website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. Special thanks to Abercrombie and Kent as well. A new episode of Kiwi Tripsters will be released in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts. And uh, also, of course, we, we, we'd like you to rate us on Apple Podcasts <laughs> too. Now, before we go, it is the season, so allow me to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Are you doing much for Christmas, Chris? I'm going to stay around across New Zealand. Usually I like to go away, but I'm going to stick here in New Zealand. Did you get all your Christmas shopping done in time? I did. I did mine in November. <laughs> all of it in November. Really? Very proud of that. Did you take advantage of Black Friday at the end of November? No. No. Oh. Oh. You haven't submitted <laughs> to that great American we'll, commercial craze. No, we'll do Boxing Day instead, the Boxing Day sales. Fantastic. Well, it's been great sharing the festive season with you on Kiwi Tripsters. Have a wonderful Christmas season. We will catch you in a uh, fortnight for a fresh episode in 2020. <laughs>